You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Oh, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Well, we are in a new message series called Moving Forward. And so, man, I mean, so many of us are like, with COVID-19, it's been crazy. It's been like a, like a, like a reset, you know, and, and so much of kind of kind of where we're at and what's going on in today's culture and times. It's like, it's just trying times, you know? And so we're in a new message series called Moving Forward. It doesn't mean that we're not, you're going to use wisdom and think about how to move forward without uh, kind of paying attention to the world around us. But it means that at, at some level, no matter what we're going through, the hardship, the setback, the challenges that we face, we as God's people have got to move forward. So, um, I'm excited about this message series and want to welcome all of you that are online. So glad that you're joining us as well uh, outside and then in service. And so in light of all that, this last week uh, I had the privilege opportunity to be uh, at a conference where there was about 600 different churches represented there um, from across the country and even some uh, from across the globe. And man, I heard the stories of kind of what's going on with people in, in light of COVID-19. And there's a lot of struggle, a lot of challenges. I mean, the, the environment that we are in in the United States of America is very difficult. You know, I mean, political uh, ideas or mask, no mask, like it's a challenge. And so I just want to share with you some of the things that are on my heart as a church uh, and as a pastor of North Valley Community Church that I'm proud of in some areas that I think that we need to move forward in together before I get started in today's message. Um, first of all, I just want to say, like, I'm so proud of our church as how we navigated through COVID-19. The church closed the doors for about five months or so, and uh, we were online and went way online, and so the church didn't step back. It did step forward, but we did close the doors so we could get a handle and an understanding on what is COVID-19. Um, and in light of that, what we did was we did more than $200,000 worth of campus development work to, uh, we tore up the parking lot, we ran infrastructure, we turfed the areas, we made the kids area even more awesome, we ran fiber optics into create an outdoor space, we got video cameras, we got a tech team designed to figure out how to go online. Like, we went all out. And I'll tell you why that's I'm proud, is I'm proud not only because our staff and our volunteers worked really hard, but as a congregation, as a whole, something wonderful happened. Um, We as a church responded with major faith because most of my buddies were doing layoffs, 40% uh, staff layoffs. And I said to our staff team, we're not going to lay anybody off unless we can't pay a mortgage. And then I'm going to tell the mortgage company, I'm sorry, I'm choosing my staff, come get me. And uh, they wouldn't do that. Uh, we've never missed a mortgage payment. We've never missed a, uh, we've never had to uh, hold somebody's check. You guys graciously responded. You gave financially and faithfully. And then what happened was, is that the church just kind of continued to move forward. Our audience grew larger online. And then we opened up the services and we did something that most churches don't do. Um, some churches do. We just said, if you want to wear a mask, you can wear a mask. And we used a phrase and we said this, we're going we're gonna to love everyone and we're going to judge no one, right? So here's what happened. Uh, 60 to 70% of our church showed back up, and many new people showed back up, and they were excited. They were ripping off their masks. Woo, yeah, freedom, baby! You know, and it's like, okay, like, hey, let's go. Now, here's 30% of the folks said, I'm not comfortable. And remember what I said. We said, judge no one, love everybody. So here's what's grieved my heart is, I miss the 30-something percent of the folks that are at home and uncomfortable for one reason or another. And as a church pastor and leader, I'm concerned. Like, we've got to do more as a church to reach more people. And so here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we're going to change the, the method of what we're already doing with our 9 and 1030. But here's what I'm asking you to pray about with me. That we add a third service at 8.30 in the morning for those that want to wear a mask. And then we would require everyone that shows up to wear a mask. And you say, require? And I say, yeah, why not? Like, just do whatever it takes. The Bible's like the Apostle Paul says, be all things to all people. So as church leaders, let's just do whatever it takes. And we were right that, guess what? Since we've been open some 13 weeks, not one COVID outbreak, praise Jesus. 
we understand the virus, but is it still a threat to American society and the world around us? Yeah, it is. But listen, folks, we're not going to build tribes here um, that's within the Christian faith. We are under one tribe. Our king is Jesus. And we've got too much division going on in our culture already, politically, uh, medically, and all that stuff. So pray with me if you think that it would be a good idea or you got friends and family that would start attending our services, because we miss about 30% of our folks. And I think if we required a, uh, did an 8.30 mask required service, even ask the kids to do it, then folks would start showing up again. And we got to do whatever it takes to get people re-engaged. We've got to move forward. Let's say that together. We've got to move forward. The world's got to keep going. And you and me need to do whatever it takes to move forward as a church and as a Christian, as a family member, as a student, as an employee, as an employer, we got to move forward. And so with all this that's going on, I just want to try to figure out how do we move forward. And so I'm excited about that opportunity, uh, that potential. We need our staff, our volunteers. We need enough people in the congregation saying, hey, we're in. We really want to do that. What I'm not asking you to do is shift and change your mind. If you like the 9 and the 1030, then great. This is for those that are online or this is for those that haven't showed up yet. And so we need to create options as a church. And I'd like to be able to do that, but I need your help and prayer and consideration with that. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. All right, well, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into a very interesting book of the Bible called uh, Haggai. And you might say, who is that guy, Haggai? Like, minor prophet in the Bible, really, really cool. So I'll, I'll get into it in just a minute, and we'll look together at it. Heavenly Father, we pray and give you thanks for today. Lord, we love your church. I thank you for the generosity and the faithfulness of this congregation in this room, outside and online that we didn't have to step back, we stepped forward. We built a better campus, we went online. We're reaching more people, Lord. We saw more baptisms than we've ever seen in a, in, in a five-week period of time in our history of our church of the last eight years. Lord, we pray for a great next eight years. We want to move forward. Pray that your word would inspire, energize, and exhort us to live faithful to the calling that you've called each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're looking at uh, this, uh, this book in the Bible called Haggai. It's in the Old Testament, and uh, I'm basically going to do a case study on the Israelites, uh, and so we're doing history lesson. The last eight weeks, I was giving you future, teaching about the future of our world through Revelation. Now it's back to history. So that's what's crazy cool about the Bible. The Bible tells you the future, and it also tells you the past, but we all know sometimes our greatest lessons are from things that happened in the past, right? So um, that's what we're going to be looking at, the book of Haggai. Um, and these, if you're not familiar with the book of Haggai, I get it. Like, I remember when I first saw Malachi, I, I was a brand new Christian, and I was like, oh, dude, I didn't know this guy named Malachi was in here. Is he Italian or what? And they're like, dude, no, no, like, Ryan, be quiet. Like, no, you don't know, bro. I was like, oh, okay. So Haggai is a little Old Testament uh, prophet 500 plus years before the time of Jesus Christ. And here's kind of what the, the prophets are all about. They kept blasting like Israel and telling the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, all the Israelites, those are those that lived in Jerusalem, God's special people, the Jewish people. And this is before the time of Jesus Christ. And the prophets basically said a couple of things like, hey, you need to turn away from idolatry, like quit trying to worship other things and other people, worship, worship God. And then second, like you need to be compassionate and caring and loving. Like learn, learn, learn to love people show compassion. And so what happened though with the Israelites is, is this, is that the prophets kept saying that and they said, if you don't, let's say that together, if you don't, then something's going to happen. You ever been there as a parent before? If you don't do this, then this is going to happen. Or ever been there as a friend? If you keep doing that, this is going to happen. So here's what happened. The prophet said, if you don't get in line and quit worshiping other idols and not loving other people, this is what happened historically. The prophet said, all throughout the minor prophets and the major prophets said, Babylon's going to crush you. 
Babylon's going to come in, the powerful empire is going to come in and burn down your city. It's going to break down the temple, destroy your gardens, destroy your parks, ruin your streets, and they're going to conquer you and they're going to take you. Ever seen that movie Taken with Liam Nielsen or whatever? Freaky, scary movie. If you've got a little daughter, you're like, you're not going to Paris. So, and they're taken and then they're taken and they're in Babylon. But then guess what happens in Babylon? You're like, dude, this is a history lesson. Yes, hopefully it's like animated 3D, you're in it. But they're in Babylon. They're exiled in Babylon. They got to stay there. Jeremiah said, like, you better make yourself at home because you're going to be there a long time, plant gardens, live with people, marry people. You're stuck in Babylon. You didn't obey God. So the prophets say that. And then here's what happens. And then a new king comes in. Darius, he's the king of Persia, and guess what he does? He wipes out Babylon. And under a new king, you get new leadership, and you know what Darius says? Hey, Israelites, feel bad. Y'all been here for like 70 years. If you want to go home, go home. That'd be good. If you want to go home, pack up your stuff. You can move back to Israel, but I got to tell you something. The walls are broken down. The temple's destroyed. There's nothing there. So what do they do? There's a chunk of people, biblical history, biblical history, really happened. Move from now Persia to Jerusalem, back to the Holy Land, back to the Promised Land. The Jewish people are like, you can't stop them. They're coming back. And they fill that place, and then they start rebuilding. But something happens. And what happens is this, is they fail to move forward. A bunch of them got there but they're really not moving forward with God's priorities. So let's jump in and give you a couple of bullet points to kind of frame this up, and then we'll jump into the text, and I'm going to give you some um, points to help you kind of apply to your life. So here are the bullet points of what I just told you about. Number one, you need to realize these were godly people, okay? These were godly people. These aren't bad people. They're people like you and me, for the most part. If you're a Christian, you love Jesus, you love the Bible, you say, yeah, church is a place where I get filled and fed, and I get fueled up, it's godly. It's godliness, you know? So these are godly people. These are good people. Secondly, you got to remember, the economy was a total mess, absolute disaster. There is no economy moving in Jerusalem at this time. They just showed up. They've been in exile for uh, 70 years, and now they're coming back home to a destroyed home. So the economy's wrecked, kind of like it is now in some ways. And then here's something else. They didn't really understand what was going wrong. Something was not working. They're working really hard, but they're not like harvesting like they used to. They're trying to work and and get things going, but they feel like there's something off just spiritually. And then, but here's the deal. Haggai speaks up as a prophet and speaks to the people of Israel. And once they understood what was going wrong, they immediately obeyed. They, they, once, they un, once they knew the problem, they immediately obeyed. And that's like, like me. I make lots of mistakes. I'll tell you about one in just a minute that I made in the first service. I wish somebody would have just said, dude, like, what, you're wrong. Like, I want to get it right, like, real quick. And so once they understood what went wrong, they obeyed. So let's jump into the text. Ready? Haggai verses 1 through 11. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, that's the guy from Persia, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, that's that prophet, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittael. I don't know if I said that right, but neither do you know if I said that right either. (laughs) Governor of Judah and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak which I like saying that word. That's great. I'm going to name my next kid that maybe, Jehozadak. Hey, this is Jehozadak. That would be awesome. We got a guy in our church that works in the parking lot. His name is, is it Isaiah? I think it's Isaiah. And I call him, you know, when you get a Bible name, you don't know what to say sometimes. I'm like, Elijah. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, dude, is that your name? And then finally I find out, no, it's not your name. It's really Isaiah. I'm like, Bible name. But... It's awesome. Good name. All right. Verse two. So thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice it's the Lord of hosts. It's the guy who's in charge of all of heaven. 
these people, who are these people? You ever heard that before? These people. Um, these people are the Israelites. The Lord of hosts is God. Haggai's preaching, teaching, to, uh, uh, speaking on behalf of God to the Israelites who are in Jerusalem, come out of exile. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. What is that house? That's the temple. Then verse 3 Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? That house is the temple. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, let's say this last phrase together, consider your ways. Let's say that again, consider your ways. Whatever is repeated in the Bible when you're reading it is very, very important. This phrase is going to be repeated. Um, what I love about godly leadership and about uh, the Bible is um, right here is just an indication. It's just challenging us to be all in. Like the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment Jesus said. If you're going to consider your ways, like he's not pushing this overly hard, but he's saying there's something wrong. Haggai's speaking on behalf of the Lord. He's saying something's wrong. Like your houses look sweet. They're like blinged out. They got panels everywhere. They look really good. But the temple I just saw is like utterly destroyed. So you came back and you're in Jerusalem, the holy city, but your house looks good, but God's house, it doesn't look so good. Now watch this. He's going to start explaining some of the problems that are going on. Verse 6, he says, you've sown much and harvested little. You ever felt like that before? You, you do a lot of work, you're planting, you're investing, and then the return is just not what you wanted. Raise your hand. Ever been there before? Discouraged? Like, golly, I put a lot of energy into that, and it didn't go anywhere. Watch this. Haggai's explaining kind of the emotional uh, state of being as to where they're at. And he's also revealing kind of the divine hand of consequences here. He says, you eat, but you never really have enough. You, you drink, but you never have your fill. Your clothes, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so just to put them in a bag with holes. It's like they're working really hard, but it's going nowhere. It's like two steps forward and one step back. They're like frustrated. And watch this, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let's say that again, consider your way. Consider your ways. So, So what's going on? So Haggai's trying to tell them and... He's telling them, I, I know you're frustrated. You, you, you've been back now in Jerusalem. You've been in exile. I'm glad you're here. You're working on your house. You didn't do nothing with God's house. Verse 8, you need to do something, he says. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Not your house, but the house. So it, even in, the, in today's times, like in the New Testament, the church is likened to a house. You know, it's like, this is God's house. I tell our guest services team, like, you got to remember when we're inviting people over, it's like, it's the Lord's house, man. So you got to make it good. You got to make them feel comfortable. You got to be a good host. We got to make it look good from the street to the seat. We want it to be like, awesome. Come on over to the house. This is God's house. It's a big family. The funky family, some super funky. But he says this, go up to the hills, bring the wood down, build the house. It's interesting to me because what what did they already do? They were already working on their house and they paneled it and they probably paneled it from the, the, the timber from the mountains of Lebanon, which are just outside the city up in the mountains, some really nice, swanky, expensive material, but they did nothing for God's house. Look what it says. The Lord speaks here, and he says, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Now he says, verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Verse 10, therefore, 
So you already got the because, now you get the therefore. They didn't pay attention to God's house. They paid attention to their house, but therefore, here's the consequence. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. Verse 11, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. What's going on here? God was revealing some misplaced priorities. He's revealing some misplaced priorities. They cared about their personal pleasure rather than what delights God. You know, I mean, there's a passage in Scripture that says, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. We need to delight in who God is, love who God is, and God finds delight and joy in us walking in faithful obedience. Here's what was happening. It's easy to do. They get back from exile. They come to Jerusalem, and they're looking out for numero uno themselves. And as a Christian, it's really challenging, right? Because we're called to put other put God first, others second, and then we ourselves last. That's, that's, that's pretty selfless. And there's some misplaced priorities. Their priorities were on their house. They like literally, they, they, like, they like blinged out their house, pimped out their house, and then God's house has got nothing. And so here it is, is God's revealing some misplaced priorities. Secondly, God uses, this is something I think for us today, is God uses trying times to reset our priorities. You know, I, I don't know about you, but COVID-19 was kind of like a reset for me. I started thinking about how am I going to do ministry? How am I going to do life? How, how are we going to do church? How are we going to... Am I the best version of myself that I want to be? Am I, am I the greatest dad or, or the husband or, or the pastor? Like, how can I grow in this? And it was an opportunity to kind of reset. And for you, I bet it's the same thing. Like, it's kind of, a, it's kind of put the a reset opportunity for you. And I want you to think it like that because God's totally in control of every situation and every circumstance that you're in. And he wants to bring you to a place where you're trusting him, walking with him, and moving forward in your faith. Not only that, but in each generation, Christians face face their own challenges. So every generation, this generation that we're in today, will always remember 2020. Like it changed everything. Like, High school kids never got a graduation. You know, um, friends lost uh, loved ones in a nursing home and were isolated and like couldn't go see them. And, and there's been social isolation. There's been job loss like never seen before. Like it's just a crazy world that we live in. And as Christians and as churches, we need to have incredible compassion and empathy and care and concern and realize this is a very unique time. But it doesn't mean God's abandoned us. And we have challenges, but as believers, we must consider how to better build up God's kingdom work, no matter what the circumstances we find ourselves in. You know, I was at this conference, there's 600 plus uh, uh, pastors, leaders, ministry leaders, or whatnot uh, from around the country, and just hearing their stories of what's going on in their life, and it's like kind of sad. So many churches are down to 10% of their average attendance, and the high number was 30%, and our church has been like right around 60% or so of our average attendance has shown back up, and that's encouraging. Um, but we're in a place where we're thinking, man, we've got we to do more. We've got to keep building up God's kingdom. And that's why we're, we're trying to move forward with offering, um, where I'm asking you to pray with me, but offering a, a third service at 8.30 in the morning for those that just want to wear a mask and, and feel more comfortable. But we, we as believers have always got to be building up God's kingdom, not breaking things down, but building them up. As a church, we have that responsibility. As Christians, we need to be always, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, and here's the deal. God wants to use you to help build his kingdom and bless you in the process. He wants to use you. You have a part to play in your work environment, in the church world, in everything. God wants to use you in this time, in this generation, with your gifts, skills, and talents. Here's my question. Consider your ways. Are, are, are you happy with where you're at? I mean, if you're a Christian and you read the Bible and you love Jesus, like, it's fine to ask this question. What makes you happy? Go do that. Like, you're good. It, it's okay. Just do, do what makes you happy 
as long as you're rooted in Jesus, you love the Bible, like God's Holy Spirit's working there, go do that, but ask yourself, consider your ways. Is it bringing honor to God? Is it blessing God? And so here's the deal. If we're going to build up God's kingdom, it's essential to learn how to be financially faithful to God. Um, this is so important because uh, this is the issue with Haggai and those guys in Israel. They were not really taking care of God's house. They were taking care of their own. And so three principles that I want to give you, three keys to financial faithfulness for building God's kingdom and blessing in our own personal lives. Number one is put God's house before your house. That's kind of a first things first uh, principle, priority. I've always had this as a, as, a, as a new Christian and time out. No, not always. As a, as a Christian, there was a period in time in my life when I remember I was working at a church. I was working a landscaping job. I was 20-something years old. I just got married. And I didn't know this was going to happen, but we had twins. And I was already pretty broke. And I was going to college, finishing out my senior year, and my church didn't pay me hardly anything at all. And I, I get it. I wouldn't have paid me either if I was in charge. It was like, dude, I don't know about you. We'll try you out. But they took a bet, and they, they hired me. They're like, man, we want you to be in ministry. I thought I was going into the business world. They said, we want you to try. And I said, okay, great. And then all of a sudden, I started reaching all these kids, being a youth pastor, and they were like, man, you're really good at this. They gave me a budget. Listen to this. They gave me a budget that was twice my salary. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you trust me to run this, but my salary is like nothing. Like, I was pretty bitter. I remember I was uh, working in college, and then I was uh, cleaning leaves, and then I remember this one lady, I'll never forget it. She was like, I'm glad you're cleaning my leaves, but my dog's in the backyard, and there's some mess back there. I need you to clean up my big dog's droppings. I'm like, lady, do you know how big your dog is? That's a big dog. I, I was so, like, at my end, like, God, I don't, I don't, I'm not questioning you exist, but I don't like where I'm at, and here's what happened. Ministry came in town, first service, I was telling the story about how I did this outreach, and it was a really cool time. It was, uh, it was I don't know if you guys remember uh, when uh, Stephen Baldwin gave his life to Jesus Christ and, and became a Christian, and, uh, and he started growing in his faith, and so he's traveling around the country, and I found out about Stephen, and in first service, I said, Alec, and everybody's like, not Alec. Uh, but it was Steve, and he became a Christian, and we were doing this youth outreach, and I remember having him, um, I met him, and we were going to organize this big youth outreach, and, it, and I remember I, I, I met him, I met this uh, BMX team, this skateboard team, this motocross team, we were going to do this big festival, and I said, how much is it going to cost for us to do this? And they said, it's going to cost about $30,000, and the, the Luis Palau team has appointed you to be the city leader. I'm like, I'm 20-something years old, I'm broke as a joke, like, I don't think I can do this. They're like, no, we, we think you can. So I'm like, okay, so I go hit the trail really hard, start telling people, people are going to come to faith in Christ. Stephen's a brand new Christian. It's really awesome. You know, somebody's going to preach the gospel. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be thousands of kids there. And so I start trying to raise money, and it's dead end, dead end, dead end, dead end. And then guess what happens? My wife sits down, and she says, do you ever think maybe you want to consider, like, why this isn't working? And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, are you financially invested in the project? And I said, no, we can't. We're so broke. Our mortgage payment's like 400 bucks, and I don't think we can pay it. And she said, Ryan, I just really believe that if we honor God, that he'll figure out a way to make it work. And how can you, oh, that hurt. How can you, she says, go out and raise money for a project that you're not personally invested in? So I was like, okay, fine. And I, something happened, and I got $300. I was so proud, gave the money put it in a pot and get to the church. And then I told him, I got 300. I need like a lot more money uh, to finish out the 30,000, but we'll get there. So the next couple of days I go on a business trip uh, in the city. I meet a guy and I say, uh, hey, this is what the cost is. I said, would you be interested to help cover any of that or all of that or maybe none of that? And he said, well, I'll give you 10,000. I said, dude, that's cool. Are you serious? 10,000? You said 10,000? And then the next meeting I had, I got introduced to a guy named George Gleason. He's the president of Bank of the Ozarks. Kind of a big shot. He says, Ryan, I'm proud of you. Um, and he said, are you personally invested in this project? I said, 
Yeah? And he goes, good, because I wouldn't invest into anybody that wasn't personally invested. He goes, here's another 10000 If I would not have been personally invested, I don't think we would have got that second. Then the next thing I know, I meet another guy, and he does the same thing. So we had more than enough money. Stephen came to town. Gospel was preached. We had 500 kids give their lives to Jesus Christ. Here's my message to you is you always got to put first things first. You can't forget about God's house, God's work, God's kingdom. And that's exactly what happens here in the book of Haggai. He says this, is it a time that for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That means that we need to consider our ways and how we're doing life. If we want God's blessing, God's uh, on our, our marriage, our, our work, and our financial life, like, consider your ways. Um, there's this principle as well under this idea is just honor God first, not with your leftovers. So many times when it comes to uh, trying to trust God and invest into God's work, um, we just try to give the leftovers. And by the way, just so you know, this principle for financial faithfulness is only for believers. This is not for an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever hearing this message, this is not for you. This is the privilege and the opportunity as a Christian today to invest into God's kingdom to make a big, big impact. And so honor God first, not with the leftovers. This is Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. The Bible says, honor the Lord with the wealth, with your wealth, there it is, and with the first fruits. This would have been a, uh, uh, an agrarian society, the first thing that came up. Of all your produce, and some people say, so does that mean we tithe or we give from the net of our income or the gross? And I always ask, well, what do you want God's blessing on? Do you want it on the little part or the big part? Um, It says all your produce, verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, there's a lot of funky uh, teaching that's incorrect about, uh, uh, it's been called the prosperity gospel. This church is not a prosperity gospel message, preaching, teaching church at all. The Bible doesn't indicate that. But however, there is a principle here that talks about when you honor God, he'll, he will bless you in return. Does it always happen? No, not necessarily. I mean, how many of the disciples died of poor death? That Jesus died uh, without a without a home. He was basically homeless, like not always. But many times in scriptures, there's this blessing that's promised. And so here's the reality is that um, when we read this scripture, we can be encouraged that when we honor God first, here's what we're doing. Number one, we're honoring God. When you give first, it's showing honor. Like, God, you own it all. You, you, you gave me the ability to do this. I want to honor you with my wealth. Like, that's good. Haggai later says that all the gold and the silver in the hills are, 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 are the Lord's. So it's all God's. Everything you make, everything you do, it's all God's. Everything is God's. And so when you give first, what you're doing is you're honoring the Lord. Secondly, you're giving thanks. It's an opportunity for you to give thanks. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for doing that in my life. Thank you for giving me the privilege and the opportunity. And then third, you're trusting. You've got to trust God in that process. Let me tell you a story about how this church started and, and what happened. Um, the church is about eight years old. Um, we started uh, about eight years ago. And uh, when I first moved out here, I had a team of three pastors, very unheard of to do this. But we started out and I said to each one of these pastors, I said, I want you to raise 100% of your salary so that when we get to the start building a congregation and start reaching people, they don't have to pay your salary and then it feels weird. And that'll show me you're in. And they said, you want me to raise my salary? I said, yeah. And they said, how long? And I said, five years. I was a business guy. I knew it took five years for something to start. And usually they all fail. 90% of churches fail within the first five years. 90% of businesses fail in the first five years that start up. So I said, raise your salary for five years and work with me. They're like, dude, that's hard. I said, I know, but you don't have to work with me if you don't want to. So they packed up their stuff, moved from Little Rock in Texas, and they, and they came. And we had a, uh, about 10 others that came with us. And I told them, I said, not only do I want you to raise your own salary, I know this is going to be challenging, but I want you to give 10% of your income back to the church. And they said, dude, you're killing me. I said, listen. <laughs> I said, how can we tell people to give? 
how can we look at the scriptures and not have conviction about this idea of tithing and giving and ask for God's blessing, but we're not doing it ourselves? I remember one time I was in a church, very large church, nationally known, sitting at the elder table, a leadership. They're all griping and complaining about nobody's giving at our church. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, I wonder if these people are giving at the table. Because if I was God, I'd be like, I ain't giving. The church ain't going to be struggling if the leaders aren't in place. And then one godly, brave guy stood up and goes, hey, I just got a question, gentlemen. Are you personally tithing? Are you giving sacrificially? Because we're asking our people to do it. And everybody was quiet. And I was like, that church is going to die. And I'm telling you, that church has struggled ever since then. And nothing turned. Here's the deal. It's just life, right? If you're not personally invested, there's no skin in the game. It's like my kid. He wants a car. Like, hey, dad, give me a car. I'm like, how much do you want to spend on a, how much do you think I should spend on a car? He's like, I don't know, maybe five or 6000 I'm like, dude, I'm not getting you a car. Like, you put $2,500 or so, maybe I can cover you. But, and I, he was like, well, let me get a car that's 1000 because I can pet, come up with it. I'm like, no, more skin in the game, more ownership. So that's what happened with our staff team. They jumped in and they, they started giving financially and we were all excited and guess what? The church started growing and then guess what? All the tithes and the offerings I got to say to our church, hey, guess what? Nobody takes a salary here for the next five years. All the money goes straight back into ministry. Then I had a ministry uh, group approach us and said, hey, uh, Ryan, uh, we want to partner with you. We'll give you $30,000 to help get your church up and going. And I said, dude, that's a lot. That's amazing. So I started talking with them, meeting with them. And then I found out, I was like, it doesn't fit right. It's not good. It's not what we want to do. And I gave the money back. Had another meeting, just a very short time. With a meeting, uh, and I'll tell you who the church is because I'm very proud of them, thankful for them, Scottsdale Bible. Their leadership team approaches me and says, we hear you're planning a church. We've been praying about helping sponsor and support a church planner like you. We love your biblical theological training, your background, all your team. We love you. We want to help you. I said, dude, that's really cool. And they said, first question is, is do you have any affiliation or connection financially to any other church or organization right now? And I said, no, I just turned one down yesterday. And they said, good, then we'll take you. I said, that's cool. I said, how much is it? And they said, $300,000. And I was like, whoa. So here's what happened. As soon as that we, we did a three-year partnership and then we were able to do this, we moved forward. The church started growing. We moved from Barry Goldwater High School over to the movie theater. We were the richest church probably in the state for our size because we were just, we were so small, but we had, we had so much money. It was crazy cool. And guess what? I could say on Sunday, our staff doesn't take a paycheck. We raised all our own support. And the, all the money kept going back into the church. And then guess what? God opened a door. The recession hit and opened a door for this property to open up. And a church that's just a few years old was able to say, in faith, we're going to move forward. We're going to take that. And then guess what? All of our church responded financially, sacrificially, and said, we're all in. We're so excited. My wife and I sold a house, gave a big portion of the proceeds. Other people sold houses. Other people sold cars. Other people did, took, took, uh, they lowered their standard of living and gave financially. And it, it was a, the biggest blessing I could ever imagine for our church. But in order to do that, you got to number two, you got to stop pretending. If you're going to be financially faithful, you got to stop pretending. If you're a parent, you don't have to pretend anymore if you want to be financially faithful. You don't have to pretend for your kids. Like they have to go to the best schools, the best colleges, the best, um, have the best cars. They, ha they don't have to. Like why, who are we trying to impress? As a student, you don't have to pretend anymore that you have to have the nicest clothes or a single or a young married couple. Like you have to, like God loves you the way you are. And if you're going to be financially faithful, you got to stop pretending. And, and that's the challenge for each and every generation. And when we, if we're going to move forward as a church and in, in this country, we, we need to be financially faithful to invest in God's kingdom above every other kingdom. And then we need to realize that we don't have to pretend. And this is why credit card is so bad, is because people just overextend themselves. They, 
they, they, they buy homes and cars and try to get kids to schools and colleges that they can't afford. Here's what the Bible says, Proverbs 13, 7. It says, one pretends to be rich yet has nothing. Like, I love Proverbs. Like, Proverbs is so simple, and I'm an ADD guy, and I can open up the Bible. There's one chapter per day. Like, I read, I always ask people to pray for me for wisdom. Here's what the Bible says about pretending. It says, if you pretend, basically, you're going to have nothing. Like, quit pretending. It's okay. If people look at you a little funny and like, dude, your shirt's old. Well, I can afford it, okay? It's paid for. Dude, your car's a little ratty. Well, it's paid cash. I love it. Be that guy. Be that girl. So when one pretends to be rich yet has nothing. So what does that mean? That means you got to commit to live within your means. you got to live within your means. You know, my wife and I live in the smallest house in our entire community. And people come over, and i got more kids than a lot of folks. I mean, i got three, so I break the average. Some of you got four or five, like, awesome, great. i got the smallest house. And I'm tempted all the time. Like, I drive by and look at other houses. I'm like, man, it would be nice to have a little space. Did you know for years I studied my office was in my closet? And when laundry wasn't done, it was a stinky closet. But there's blessing in just not, like, there's blessing in not having as much in some sense. And, and don't get me wrong. Like, if you've got a really sweet car or a really nice big house and you can afford it, like, take pictures and send them to me and I'll celebrate you. I'm like, dude, that's awesome. You're crushing it, going to Hawaii and going to, you know, ski trips, like, and you can afford it? Bible teaches that kind of reality. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, like, teach the godly to, be, um, to enjoy everything that they have, but to be generous. So the Bible doesn't, isn't a, a, a prosperity gospel, but it's not a poverty gospel either. So you're not more godly if you're poor. Like, that's not it. No, you're godly just being you, but live within your means, because it's dangerous, because if you start getting in credit card debt like crazy, then look what the relationship is. Or in any kind of debt, it can be really tough. Proverbs 22, 7 says, the borrower is slave to the lender or of the lender. And, and the concept here is for this is like back then, there's not as many lending institutions as there are today and credit card companies and all that. But there would be a wealthy family member or somebody in the community that had a lot of money and people would go to him and be like, dude, I need a loan. Like, can you help me out? And they would give a loan. But guess what? As soon as you give that loan to that person, that family member, or that friend, it changes the relationship, right? It changes it. Because then you don't want to show up at Thanksgiving because you're like, they owe me money, or I owe them money, and I hate that. So it's not that it's wrong to borrow money. The Bible just says just be careful, be aware that it's going to change the relationship. Here's my advice to those of you who perhaps uh, have a little bit more and could lend to people. Here's my advice to you. Don't lend. Give. If somebody said to you, hey, man, we're falling on hard times, do you think you could lend us 100 bucks?" Be like, no, but I can give you 75. And, and then you're good. There's no expectation back. Or if they say, hey, could, could I borrow $1,000? I'm really in trouble right now. I, I can't do that. I, I don't, I don't want to change our relationship. I love you and I care for you, but I can't afford that right now. But what I can do is we've prayed about it, thought about it. We're going to give you four or $500. We're just going to give it to you. I hope you get, get things squared away. But when you start lending money, it can really, it changes the relationship. And so why do we pretend? We pretend for three reasons. There's an image trap, there's a power trap, and there's a pleasure trap. Some of you, this, one of these could be your idols. And this has got you in a cycle of bondage. You love yourself or you think that people value you based on the way you look or your status or whatever. So it's an image issue. So you got to have the nicest foods, got to have the nicest cars, you got to have this or have that. And there's nothing wrong, like I said, with stuff, right? But if you're doing it to try to impress people and you're not living within your means and you really can't afford it, then it's not good. The image trap, the power trap is you're just constantly trying to have influence. You're constantly trying to look better and be better and have more power and control. Or the pleasure trap is you just want to be feel good all the time. And these are the traps that cause us to pretend. And so if we can't figure these out, we, we've got to figure these out. 
So one of those just might be yours. And here's the third principle for financial faithfulness and moving forward to help build up God's kingdom and to bless you personally is this to start saving. And even if you're a kid, as a kid, I would tell my kids, I'm going to pay you an allowance to do chores so you don't just get free money at my house. I'm going to, give you, I'm going to pay you if you do chores and, and above your chores. So I'm associating money with work. And then I say, I want you to give 10% back to the Lord. And then I want you to save uh, 10%. And then I want you to spend the rest. And start... Um, start saving. And some of you don't have savings, but you should get savings because when you save, it it allows you to do more and be more generous. Um, My wife is like a budget like guru. Like, I don't know, like Rachel Cruz has got some really good stuff. Dave Ramsey's got some really good stuff. Um, Financial Peace University, there's uh, Crown Ministries. We have a number of organizations that we work with to help people in our church just get their financial world together. And if you are that person, then we would be glad to help. Um, We've got consultants that can help you, and we'd love to help scholarship you if you can't afford that, but we want to help you learn how to honor the Lord, stop pretending, live within your means, and then start saving. And so here's Proverbs 21, 20 says this, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. In other words, the Proverbs is saying back then is like, you have something there. And if you're constantly just chewing up all your resources and devouring everything, then you got nothing to share with anybody. Um, and so it's important to start figuring out how to save. Proverbs 13, 22, look what it says. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And, and, and if we don't get off the track, if we get way off track financially, then we don't leave an inheritance. We leave debt for, for kids and for grandkids. And like, that's just not a blessing. That's like a burden. Like, you don't want to do that. And so the Bible talks about this importance of starting to save. Here's another one, Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Isn't that a cool passage? Very practical truth. Like um, before, I, before I got into ministry, I was on the uh, track for uh, business entrepreneurship. That was my study in business school um, back in Little Rock, uh, U of A in Little Rock. And I was reading all sorts of books. And a couple of the books I read, uh, very interesting, was uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't know if you've ever read that book or heard of that book. But another book was uh, The Millionaire Next Door. And both of those books and a number of other business books I've read basically have this principle right here, Proverbs. It just says this, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. That's the get rich schemes. It ain't happening. If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Um, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. That's, that's what you got to do. You just gather little by little. So how, how do you do that? Well, here's some principles for you. Spend according to budget, not according to balance. I literally hear this sometimes, even in our own household, which we love budgets. But we're like, well, we got this much in the account. We're good. No, that's not the way to think about it. It's best to go, what's in our budget? Budget just tells your money where to go. You boss your money, your money doesn't boss you. So if you don't have a budget, you need to get a budget. Maybe you have enough income that you're so good that you're just, you don't have to worry about it, and that's great. But still, would you be proud of how you used your money? Because we all have to give account to Jesus, like how we steward everything that we have. So some of us are forced to get on the budget or we're not paying the bills. Others of us don't, aren't forced. But still, do we feel good about what we spent? Like, what if our out to eat was five times our, our, our giving? Like, that's not good. You know, but just uh, consider your ways, as, as the prophet Haggai said. Consider your ways. Uh, that's what they had to do. Here's another one. Just a very basic principle, but commit to live below your means. So whatever you make, don't exhaust your balance. Like, just live below your means. And so how do you do that? You, you live by this principle right here, live by the 10-10-80 rule. Give first, save second, and then live on the rest. 
You give first, that's honoring God. You save second, you pay yourself. How about that? That's awesome. Then you live on the rest. That's what takes care of your mortgage, takes care of your whatever you've got. In today's time, we're all finding our own healthcare options. I mean, there's some expensive mortgage, like bills, everything is in that 80%. I want to close with a story. A friend of mine recently uh, pulled up, and I asked permission to share this, pulled up in the church parking lot. He he had a ratty-tatty little car, and uh, I said, uh, man, how's your car doing? Is it running? Yeah, it's running. It's got 250,000 miles. I say, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, one day I'm going to get a new car. Like two weeks later, he rolls up in a sweet ride. Like, whoa. And I was like, dang, what's up? This is sweet. Pulls up in this nice ride. And I'm like, dude, you went all out. He said, I know it's sweet, isn't it? I said, dude, it is sweet. I'm really, I'm really proud of you. I'm happy for you. But I, I don't know his financial situation. Two weeks later, he said, man, I, uh, my wife and I prayed about it, and uh, she's going to step down from work, and we're going to go from a double income to a one income. And I'm not sure how we're going to mess with that car now. He said, but that's what we need to do for our kids and our family and to honor the Lord with our giving and our serving in the church and all that. I said, dude, that's really cool. So what are you going to do? I don't know. I didn't say anything. Next time I see him, I'm like, dude, where's your car? He goes... I sold it. It's like, dude, you sold your, your brand new car? Like the car you, yeah, I sold it. I was like, did you, did you get your money out of it? No, I lost money on it. I said, dude, I'm so sorry. I, 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 don't be sorry. He says, don't be sorry, man. It was one of the bold, it was a bold move and I'm proud. Like it was worth it. Because now I don't have that car payment and I'm good. See, for us to be faithful financially so that we're freed up to invest our lives in the lives of people, in the life of the church, I mean, we got to be in a good spot. And if we come to ourselves where we feel like we are a slave to the lender constantly and we can't afford it, we're in trouble. And I just want to tell you, as a believer in today's times, this week I'm talking about financial faithfulness. Next week I'm talking about sacrificial service. The last week and moving forward, um, we're talking about a wonderful witness. Those are the marks of maturity as a believer. And this issue, though, is so important for you. And I just want to challenge you, get healthy. Get healthy in your own financial life. For God's glory and for your good. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would apply it, live it out, and uh, Lord, I pray that we'd begin to love it. So uh, I pray for my friends here today that they just put their faith and trust in you, and Lord, live by obedience and the blessing that comes with that. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.